Da da. You like it? I love it. I love it. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. Welcome to this week's Yawa. Um, we have a little bit of uh, show and tell, if you will. I'll let you start. Well, today when we picked up the mail, I was super excited to open up our Pheasants Forever magazine. Anybody that gets the Pheasants Forever magazine, throw it in the comments below. Represent. So I was flipping through the magazine and... Who popped out at me other than Vex? So for those of you watching. Yes. Take a look. Page 19. Full page ad for Yukonuba. Goes on point and in the pond. I like it. It's very cool. This uh, this is a really cool picture. Um, You can kind of see they they obviously focused on the dog. Important part of that. But that is... Cat's side leg there. Side leg. My leg. Uh-huh. Woo, 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 woo. And Vexer, who's gorgeous. As always. And then I was flipping through. What else through, is in there? I was flipping through even more. All the things, you know. And then I saw a full two-page spread of a photo I actually took in training. Who is that? That's that's the guy with the pink gun, Ethan. But oh, that's the dog. That's Willa, the Brock. Go Italiano. She was in for training and prepping for a natural ability test. So she made the art. Well, the article isn't uh, from yeah, us or anything like that, no, no. but they used one of our photos for a highlight picture on page 34 and 35. So you'll have to check that out photo that I took. So I was pretty proud to see uh, those two things in the Pheasants Forever magazine. It was cool. Very cool. Very cool. More show and tell. Your, your turn. Mm. Uh, so, so those of you that um, like to watch the show know that I enjoy drinking bourbon and have probably never seen me drink bourbon out of this fancy little Glen Karen glass. This was a birthday gift. Some of you know my birthday is right around. It's actually. We are only a few hours away from my birthday. Ah. And I got these early. They came in a set of four with a very cool little plank thing. I've got a picture that I'm going to post later. But um, uh, made out of a... Air on my face. Um, made out of a stave that's fired and stained and it's very, very, very cool. And I got a little... She, she got a little bit of help with picking out a new uh, bottle of the evening. This is the Kentucky Owl. This is a new bourbon for me. If you have tried this, we want to hear about it. Or if you have a recommendation of another type of bourbon, he should try because he's Absolutely. all about the bourbon. I'm all about bourbon. So, well, well, happy birthday, honey. And and for Ethan's birthday, he got me a gift. <laughs> Funny how that works. I like how that works, actually. I have to show you this because it is beautiful. This is my questy pup. If you Her uh, birthday is actually tomorrow, too. Yeah, they share a birthday. So, very fitting that... For his birthday, he got me a present of Quest for her birthday, I guess. So I'm going to be looking at getting that framed. It is really awesome. If you have a chance, you should check out Pheasant Feather Art on Instagram. That's where absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, work. that's where he found the artist and was like, "Hey, I wonder if she could do something really cool with one of our dogs." And she did. 
I'm impressed. What do you guys think? You like it? I like it. I like it a lot. Hey guys, if this is your first time to the channel, definitely hit the subscribe button down over here. Turn okay. on notifications so you don't miss any of the upcoming content. And without further ado, we're going to start answering your questions. Again, we had an overwhelming number of questions. There's definitely no way we're going to get... It's ridiculous. It's good ridiculous, but um, we, we absolutely love the fact that you guys love us and want us to answer your questions. But do understand, um, we received darn near 100 questions this week, so there's absolutely no way we will be able to get all of them. If you do not get your question answered this evening or over the course of these videos that should be going out here Wednesday, um, definitely hit us up on patreon.com slash standing stone candles. It's where we're in there answering questions. I'm keyboard worrying every warrioring every single day, uh, except for on Sundays. That's family day. That is true. So we're going to get started on Instagram, May the GSP. May the GSP. When it comes to crate training a GSP, do you start with the crate they'll go into, they'll grow into, or a smaller one? That's an excellent question. So um, this is one that I think gets overlooked pretty regularly, or uh, people go, "Hey, this is the crate. I'm going to be efficient and save a little money, and you know, one crate to rule them all." And you end up with a situation that could go really well or could go absolutely horrible. Um, and I'm going to say most often it's going to go worse than it is going to go well. So what ends up happening is you're going to struggle with potty training. Now, the reason you're going to struggle with potty training is because the puppy has way too much room. So they feel comfortable to, to be able to go to the opposite side of the kennel, go to the bathroom, go back and still have space to lay around and, and be comfortable. And so you're going to want to start with the, you know, Goldilocks effect, if you will, on the crates. Not too big, not too small. You need one just right. And that's going to grow with your puppy. Now, our recommendation is buy a cheapo Walmart puppy crate for around the house. It's, it's not really going to be that big of a deal. They now, honestly usually grow out of that crate between 12 and 16 weeks old. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily need to invest in the top of the line, super duper, heavy duty, expensive crate that they're only going to be in for a few weeks, a few especially weeks, yeah. if it's just around the house. Um, we found most of the time, especially the way that our program works, we, we start potty training before your puppy even comes home to you. Uh, most of them excel. Um, and in a approximately medium sized crate, when they come home, that's going to be that good it's maybe just a smidgeny big to begin with, but they can kind of grow through that. And by the time they hit that 16-week mark, they're ready to move into the next crate and probably have a pretty good understanding and a pretty good routine that you could go to a, a larger crate that may even be close to the full-size crate for them for the rest of their life. So there are some things in there, but definitely sticking with a, a size-appropriate crate, which is going to be enough room to kind of stand in, lay down, um, but not, you know... Stand up, sit down, pick, pick a bale, a bale of cotton. cotton. That's what we always <laughs> like to say. Uh, they just need enough room to be able to sleep in there and maybe chew on a little bone. But we're expecting to get those puppies out frequently enough to play and exercise and train that they don't need a whole lot of room in that crate. Uh, the last thing that I want to put a little plug in about crate training, Ethan had mentioned it, that we actually start that process with the puppies from our breeding program, our litters, before they even go home. The litter that we've got on the ground right now, the Muddy Benny litter, we actually just put out a video on their crate training intro. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
They are just six weeks old when we started this process, or oh, I think they were maybe just under. I think they were five and a it half weeks old. It says five and a half weeks old, but I think that they were no, like they were five point seven five weeks old. It was. They it was right before six weeks, barely. but um, they started that process of staying in a crate overnight and during nap time and then going out to play and get exercise and going to the bathroom, of course. And they have been so clean. It's been very impressive for six-week-old puppies to have that incredible amount of bladder control. Well, where would they be at today? What are, What is their age right now? They turned six weeks on Friday. Six weeks on Friday. So they're approaching six and a half weeks. So they've been a, approximately a week. a week into crate training and they are sleeping overnight from, from 10 approximately, p.m. Yep. 10 p.m. to 6 uh, in the morning without accidents. Knock on wood that that continues, but they're doing awesome. It's very impressive. Now don't have false expectations because not every puppy is going to do that well, be that clean. Um, there's a lot of things that go into that. And part of that is our female muddy. She has always been a very clean, very quiet, well-behaved dog in her crate and her puppies are exhibiting that as well, which is great to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next question that I want to get to is from who's your mortgage guy. He's asked us some questions before. <laughs> I love his Instagram, ta- Instagram take. I remember the first time that we got a question for it was, I think we were with Peter. We and were. He said, who's your mortgage guy? And he's like, uh, that's well, the question? no, that's uh, not the question. <laughs> I guess uh, it was like, I don't know, Smith realty or something like that. But, you know. Do you guys do gun intros first or woe training with launchers first, or is it depending on the dog? So that's a good question. If you go to our playlists on YouTube and follow along with Quest series or Rogue series, we'll show you the order that we do all of that training in, but we typically do a bird and gun intro before we're headed to the field so that we've already done a bird introduction. Then we go to the field and start getting them to instinctually and naturally point their birds and launchers before we even introduce formal woe training. So there's definitely a progression that needs to happen and um, we do a birding gun intro first before we get to the field. Yeah, you said instinctually and naturally. Talk about for just a second how we actually do that because some people utilize check cords, some people utilize other things. I mean, what are what are we doing differently? And we use launchers. So we use DT systems, bird launchers to help bring out that natural instinct to point those birds. So what happens is we put some birds out in launchers. So it's a very controlled situation. I know exactly where those birds are. And I am going to um, electronically control the flush of that bird. So I'm going to, to bring... To be as wild-like as possible. Yes. And I want that puppy to cut across the wind. So I don't want them to have the wind full in their face so that they can work up, work up, work up, follow their nose all the way up to that bird. I want it to be a crosswind situation where they're actually coming in across the scent and going, boom, what was that? And then as soon as I see that scent acknowledgement, I'm launching that bird. So that in that puppy's mind, they think, oh, I overpressured that bird. I need to be more careful. I need to be more cautious and not run in on that bird. Don't bump it. And then after the next bird, we can try and hold that launch a little bit more, especially reading your dog and seeing what their reaction was. And then by some of these puppies, by the third bird, they're already pointing. And that is how we instinctually and naturally bring out that pointing instinct in those puppies. Next question. This is the last question for part one that we're going to be able to get to today. And it is from Coach Adam Cook from Instagram. 
tips for teaching new puppy how to be alone as we transition back to work. Ah, so that's going to be a really good one. It's going to be a really important thing for a lot of people. I think that uh, the average person, because we've heard this pretty regularly, so I would assume this is accurate, um, have kind of allowed their dogs to be out all the time and in a completely different routine from what they normally would be. And that may cause some issues if that's how a new puppy was developed to know this is what life is going to be. So um, my recommendations with that are going to be to start crate training um, and to do it fairly quickly and to understand that if you haven't been doing this and kind of teaching the puppy that being alone and having a long time is okay, it's going to be a bit of a battle at this stage. So be prepared for that. Don't uh, give up too quickly. But there's a couple different things that we're going to try with this. Uh, one of which is just just plain crate training. Um, give them some time in their crate alone. Um, there's two ways that you can go about this. We get and this is a this is a one that we get to go over pretty regularly. But the two ways we can go about this would be either the dog wants to be near you, and having that crate basically next to you. Uh, to begin with, is going to be the easiest transition. Some dogs are, you know, constantly distracted or worked up by um, what's going on in the house FOMO. and yeah, FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, and they they're up and they see things and oh, you moved or oh, they heard a noise and, and then they're constantly getting worked up and then that barking starts and all of those things. So that would be the dog that you would put in the back bedroom with a towel over it, with the drapes closed, so it's kind of darker. You can play some white music, the radio or something to kind of drown out the sounds of the rest of the house so they can spend an hour or two hours crated. And then with this process, you need to make sure, just like always, but you need to make sure that there's plenty of exercise. If you have a dog that's stir-crazy or not ready to take a nap, um, it's no different than our child. I mean, he's a year and a half, and ask him, hey, buddy, uh, you want to take a nap? No, 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 no. And if he's worn out, he's like, bed, yep, nap, I'm ready to go. And that's kind of the approach that we need to take with our puppies is we need to prepare them with enough exercise and mental and physical stimulation so that you can, um, that they're ready for that. But then lastly, you also have to have enough fortitude yourself that when you put your puppy in the crate and they complain about it, because especially if you haven't been doing any crate training up until this point and you're getting ready to head back to work, they're going to complain about it because this is not something that they want. They want to be out with you and they haven't had this expectation before. So they're going to complain and you need to have some tough skin and be able to handle listening to the whining and crying. Uh, Five minutes of crying can seem like forever. Forever. For and some now all you need is a flashlight. <laughs> Do you know that movie reference? Come on, this Put is an easy one. Throw below. it in the comments. However, if um, your puppy goes in their crate and they're crying and they're crying and they're crying and it just isn't going to end, you know, it's hard to just listen to it. We say hashtag cry it out all the time and they're going to eventually give up. The problem is if you give in and go, oh, they've been crying for 15 minutes, they've been crying for 20 minutes, and you let them out, next time, it's going to be 30 minutes. It's going to be 40 minutes because they're going to think, well, I just cry long enough and mom's going to come get me out of here, so I'll just cry my little heart out even longer. So you're actually being more unfair and doing your puppy a disservice to give 
into their crying behavior than to just say, get over it, puppy. This may be a 30 minute cry it out session, but then the expectation is next time it will be shorter and shorter and exponentially shorter until they might go in, make a few whines, make a few grumbles and then curl up and go to sleep. So be prepared. It's not always easy, but it is well worth it to put in the time. Um, and all, all things considered, if you've tried those things, you haven't in your, your puppy starts, um, some form of resentment or does it still didn't enjoy the crate. Um, a lot of times we're going to give them something extra special for crate time. Um, we will be putting out a video of exactly how to do this, but a Kong is a great thing to incorporate in this. Um, so stay tuned again, that subscribe notifications button. Stay tuned for that video that we're going to put out about how you can utilize a Kong to solve a majority of behavioral issues around the house. Yes. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you guys for all your great questions. We're going to take a short break and we will be right back. They'll talk about like the different flavors that are in there. And I was trying to see if the flavor had a flavor wheel. Did they? Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Well, I can't find the exact batch because it says, uh, it's just like a batch two, batch six, batch nine. I don't know which batch this is or if it's the same thing. I don't know. Are you ready? Yep, it's tasty though. Okay. All right, welcome back to part two this week uh, where we're going to answer more of your questions. Again, this is Yawa. You ask, we answer, folks. If this is your first time to the channel, hit the subscribe button. Let's get started. Sounds good. So for first question of part two from Coach Adam Cook. How young can you start your puppy on the easy lead? My pup is between three and four months old. Easy lead. Speaking of easy leads. Dun, dun, dun. They've been out of stock. We had problems getting a little piece that holds the rope ends together. And they were out of stock everywhere. And we finally got them in. And I was informed that we have an abundance. So... Uh, because multiple back orders were placed and they didn't all get canceled. So now we have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. So we shouldn't be running out of easy leads anytime soon again. So we're so sorry about the delay in getting them shipped out, but they are going out this week. So thank you. Thank you for your business. Thank you for your patience. And if you haven't got your easy lead yet, go ahead and get on the online store and place your order. So you can get one. You keep jumping out that way. Just a smidgeny. There you go. Okay. Yes. So to answer your question, how young can you start using an easy lead on your puppy? Typically, mm-hmm. for hunting dogs, we want to see a bold, independent, confident search in the field prior to working on any healing. The reason of that is if you create too much dependence on yourself through healing with your young puppy that you head into the field and they go, huh, I just have to stay in this heel position. I don't feel comfortable getting away from mom and dad. So it's harder to push them out after we've already reined them in. So it's nice to let them learn how to hunt first, then come back to that obedience. And usually anywhere from five to six months is when we're starting to see that 
boldness and confidence coming out sometimes a little bit younger depending on your puppy um and when they really just start pulling and pulling in their a handful at that point that's when you really can start using that easy lead the other would those weren't real words um the other would be your real expectations so if you're not looking for a hunting dog and it's just a, a short hair that's a family companion or any other sporting breed that's an adventure dog um, putting an emphasis on healing a little bit younger isn't going to be the end of the world. But uh, I would say that four months is probably going to be the absolute bare minimum. Um, still, five to six is going to be average. Very true. Next question, and I like this one. I'm assuming you're following along with the Muddy Benny litter development series that we've got out. From Brown Dog Boone, what does Muddy's day typically consist of as a nursing mama? Well, Muddy gets it pretty darn easy. She gets to eat and drink pretty much as much as she wants to during this process uh, because that milk production is so important and we have to make sure that she's fully hydrated and has proper nutrition for that milk development um, and production. So the puppies, there were only four of them, so they didn't really stress her out too much as far as milk production goes. But she has the opportunity to hop in the box with them and nurse and lick them and play with them and stay with them. And then when she needs a break, she can hop out. She gets to lay on um, the ground and has chew bones and things like that, as well as she gets to go outside and socialize and play. Uh, She doesn't typically get to come upstairs during this process uh, because of a couple reasons. One is she needs to be able to nurse those puppies when they need her, so she has to be accessible, as well as... Uh, after females have a litter, they are dripping for quite a while and, uh, she'd either have to wear her heat panties upstairs <laughs> or she, uh, we have them in pink and purple. Yeah. Fancy. Um, or she would just be dripping all over the place and I don't want that mess, um, in our house. So, uh, she needs to be with those puppies though. Now, however, she is to the point where she is done nursing those puppies. So she's going to be able to get back in shape, start doing some more training and yard work and things like that. And roading and conditioning like we do with all of our dogs to keep them in shape and get them back in shape. So good question. Perfect. 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 I got to just mark that one or I'll forget that I answered it because that's how my brain works. For those of you that are interested, because I have to get asked, you know, what about this and whatever. This is the um, Kentucky Owl, the gift that Kat got me this year. Uh, very, 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 very cool bottle of bourbon. Um, I belong to a little whiskey club thing, and they have a really neat um, flavor wheel is what they call it. And it shows that this, um, which is Kentucky Owl confiscated, um, has... Big notes of flavor of red apple, floral is a, a flavor that they categorize, banana, cinnamon, citrus, toasty, bread, caramel, spicy. Um, and I can tell you that you can definitely taste the apple. It's mm. a weird thing to say, but interesting. you can, just in case you wanted I'm to I'm glad you found your flavor wheel. I did. I like to read it. I know you do. That's why you're a part of Flavier and like all your bourbons and trying them out. I know. Next question. Next question from Andrew Berger on Instagram. I'm picking up my first GSP this week and I am interested in joining the Patreon account. Congratulations Congratulations for sure. And we'd love to have you join us on our online dog training community. So check it out. But 
can you guys show us some examples of how our Patreon works? Um, as far as show examples, I could explain it. Yeah, we don't have a producer that can like pop something up on the screen for us yet. Yet, yeah, yeah, yeah. yet. Pro- producer, throw that up on the screen real quick. One of these days. So, um, as far as Patreon goes, we have several different tiers. Uh, one of which is the support tier. That's for anybody that reaches out to us and asks, hey, we love everything you do. Wish there was something more that we could do to say thanks. We set that up. It's a simple $5 um, tier that just is a little bit that you can go, hey, thanks for putting out the content that you do. The next is the $10 tier, and that's the questioner, I believe, is what we refer to it. Um, basically, it's set up for all of y'all that tried to ask questions here and did you and we, those weren't real words. Slow and we didn't get down. to your questions. Have another drink. Slow down. Then there's the $25 tier. That is designed for video exchange. So if you want to be able to video your training sessions, this is what we recommend. Because the most powerful tool that Kat and I have to offer is our ability to read dogs in training situations. Without being able to see them, we can't do that. So video them, upload them to YouTube, share the link. We watch them, tell you what you did right, what you did wrong, where you need to go from there. And then the top tier adds a little more with the ability to set up scheduled phone consults. If you say, here's my video, can I call you? Um, A lot of people really enjoy just the the extra one-on-one time on the phone to be able to, um, you know, spitball some questions and see what's going on. So. Great question. I hope that we helped explain a little bit more what Patreon is all about. Anybody that's interested, it's uh, patreon.com slash standing stone kennels. So this is a really good question. Okay. I think that somebody asked a similar one. Maybe it was the same person actually on the YouTube video, but they also messaged us on Instagram. So, or, or it's a different person with the exact same question. Who knows? I didn't pay enough attention to the YouTube comment. Sorry. Okay. Um, Justin Berthistle on Instagram. I noticed in your last Sprig video, you were using two commands to release him on the double bumpers. Yep. On the Go Bird, you would release him with his name, but on the Mark Bird, you would use a back command. Could you explain using the different command, why it's used, and maybe how you teach it? Absolutely. Thanks. Absolutely. It's a great question. And um, one that I would say that I'm not 100% the best person to ask all of the logistics. I am getting better in the the deep diving into the advanced stuff with labs and retriever work. But basically the gist of it is um, with a marked bird, you're supposed to send the dog with their name. I think that's the setup for best I can understand, it's set up for individual um, duck hunting situations where you have multiple dogs hunting together. You have a bird dropped over here. I can say sprig and he can run and get that one. And when he comes back, he's shaking off, he's warming up. Then my next dog, which um, is to be unnamed, Vex is hunting with us too. I can send him Vex and he can go pick up the next duck. And that gives us the ability to not have to be right there, but each individual dog understand who's supposed to be sent for the retrieve in a perfect world. The With um, perfect dogs. With perfect dogs. So the, the next portion of that would be back. Uh, what would you set up for any? It's moving into that blind work. And back is the, the cue that the retrieving world came up with. 
Just like why does woe mean woe? Um, don't really know. It's just the word, and you don't want to fight all of the words. You just kind of use some of them that fit the thing. I mean, otherwise, it's really confusing. But we say to our dogs, stop, and everybody's like, well, how do I teach my dog woe? Well, we don't teach woe. We teach stop. It just sounds silly. So back is what you're using to send dogs on blinds, and um, a lot of that is developed through pile drills, which incorporate some marks and then you switch cues to back with each individual repetition after the initial mark. So I hope that explains that. Last question for part two of this week's Yawa from Chet Cotton on Facebook. All right, Chet. Do y'all eat all the birds you shoot while training dogs, both chucker and pigeons? If so, I'm going to need a pigeon recipe. Maybe a how to cook <laughs> pigeon video. Well, I, um, you can, if I take this one. Go ahead, go ahead, by all means. Part two is uh, the guy with the pink gun answers your questions. Maybe I'll get a few more in part three. Okay. We'll see. So uh, as far as do we eat all of the birds in training, first of all, we probably shoot close to four or 5,000 birds a year. So no, we don't eat all of them. Now, the next side of that is... I I just want to throw that... People are going to be like, you don't eat them all? That's so wasteful. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, and it's not an attempt to be wasteful because that's not what we're about. Um, but pen-raised birds are fairly difficult to keep healthy and alive in a regular situation. So um, we end up having to medicate the birds on a pretty regular basis and not a big fan of eating the medicated birds. That's a big issue. So when we get fresh birds in from the breeder that we get them from, they're really healthy. They're really good birds that way. Haven't been... Overly haven't medicated. been overly medicated. And we do a lot of times clean big batches of those and do um, chucker fajitas or because we primarily chain, we primarily train with chucker. We use chucker in exchange for any, about anything that you would cook chicken in. Cat makes great fajitas. That goes well in that or tacos or you can fry them or you can pound them out a little bit. And Alfredo. Bake them in an Alfredo sauce. Pretty much anything that you would put chicken in, throw some chucker in there. There's a little bit of difference to it, but it is a white meat, super tasty. The next, um, I will be honest, I have never, ever eaten a pigeon, but I do know a guy. Me neither. I do know a guy who has uh, some pretty almost magical ways to turn meat of all sorts, shapes, and sizes into beyond edible, even to the extent of tasty. Are you referring to Jordan? I'm referring to Jordan. Um, he actually has a YouTube channel, Jordan's Harvest. And I just have to throw this out there. If you don't know, we actually met Jordan a long time ago. A very long time ago. This is a really funny story. We should have him on the podcast to tell this story. Okay. Ha, ha, ha cliffhanger. Ha. Cliffhanger. There's a funny how we met Jordan of Jordan's Harvest story. But I will get with him, Chet, and we will get us a pigeon cooking video just for you just for you thank you guys again for watching part two all your great questions we will be back very shortly with part three see you soon this in that this is part three right Mm mm-hmm
Welcome back to part three of this week's Yawa. I'm Kat the Dog Trainer. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And if you've missed parts one and part two, go ahead and check out our Yawa playlist and subscribe to our channel so you don't Stop miss. watching now. Go back. Watch part one, part two. They have to be watched in order. Not really. But you can still go back and watch them and subscribe to our channel so you don't miss part four. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. <laughs> Getting started, answering Ooh, your questions from Cody Bidwell on Facebook. Okay. My, hey, Cody. Thanks for the question. My one-year-old GSP Lincoln is collar conditioned to recall, stay, sit, and heal. Nice. We have introduced him to birds and gunfire, and he's mentally mature enough to handle it all. Unfortunately, I fell short on developing his natural retrieve. 110% my fault, but we're going to work through trained retrieve together. My question is... Should I try to develop his natural retrieve before starting the trained retrieve? I would say if you've already been playing retrieving games and things like that, and you're not seeing a real natural retrieve, and that's why you're saying, I'm probably going to have to do this trained retrieve, and you're already at a year old, it's going to be more difficult to bring out a natural retrieve when your puppy has been so conditioned for the last year that, meh, I don't really retrieve. Sure, there's still things that you can try, still things that you can do, especially not knowing what you have tried. We kind of have our bag of tricks that we like to pull things out of once in a while and trying to bring out that natural retrieve. But ultimately, that's stuff that we try and do with younger dogs that can start developing that. And a lot of times we still end up at a year, year and a half going through the trained retrieve process, especially with all of our own personal dogs. Uh, we go through that trained Even retrieve process. Even when they're good retrievers. Yeah, definitely. Even when they're great retrievers, it's part of our testing protocol that when we get to the point where we're doing advanced testing and handling and I need the dog to retrieve everything to hand, if they drop it, I need to be able to tell them fetch and they know what it means, pick it up and hold it. So we do, even with great retrievers, great natural retrievers go through that process. But if you're thinking that your puppy doesn't have a lot of, well, your old dog doesn't have a lot of retrieving desire naturally, and you've tried a few things to bring that out, it's probably time for thinking about their trained retrieve. But if you still would like a little bit more of an evaluation, you can always reach out to us on Patreon where we can talk to you about a few of those tips and tricks that we would recommend to try and bring out a natural retrieve. And you can video those sessions so we can see how it's going and give you an evaluation of, yeah, you might get there or you know, this looks like a little bit of a lost cause and let's go ahead and cut our losses and start that trained retrieve and stop building sloppy, naughty habits. And then as you go through that process, we're happy to help. Um, that's probably one of the largest learning curves in the dog training, uh, especially bird dog training world, if you will. Um, and we're there to help. So that's patreon.com slash standing stone kennels. What do we got next? Next question, also on Facebook from Katie Garib. I adopted a one and a half year old GSP two weeks ago. He's sweet and for the most part well behaved. He doesn't have any training, however, so I've been starting from scratch. Thing is, he doesn't seem to have some of the natural traits of GSPs no love of water or retrieving, only sporadic treat interest, and a little on the fearful side. He will point the birds in the yard, though, so I have hope. Any tips for bringing him out of his shell and helping him become bold and confident? So, Katie, I don't necessarily know 
the background of your year and a half old GSP um, that you adopted or rescued. So not knowing the background, we can still give some generic, typically helpful pointers. Haha, <laughs> no pun intended. Ah, uh, you intended that pun. Okay, I did. But uh, the number one thing that I can say is be patient. It's going to take him a little bit of time to feel comfortable with you. And in order to help build that comfort, build that trust, I would say having him work for his meals is going to help that happen sooner. I know you said he's not very food or treat you motivated. Said she's had him for two weeks, right? Two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she said that he um, has sporadic treat interest. Now, I don't know if you're using treats or his meal for training sessions or trying to work with him that way, but I would recommend cutting out the treats if he really doesn't have a ton of interest in them and using his meals and having him work for those, even if it's just as simple as feeding him out of your hand and starting to you know, build that association with the clicker as a good thing, you can start that process. But making him work for his food, if he only takes a few handfuls of food and then he's done, wait for his next meal and and try again. And he's going to, A, get hungry enough that he is more willing to work for you, more willing to eat. And then he's going to understand that, hey, this person is an important person in my life and I'm going to get food from them, which is the most important thing in a dog's life, basically. Yeah, a little bit of tough love in this situation is going to go a long way. I know that you probably feel um, like you're applying human characteristics to the dog that they need love and comfort because it's a new environment and everything else, but dogs' brains work a little bit different. And you you pulled these, like what Kat just said, um, you're going to pull those uh, life-sustaining triggers in their brain. and Survival instincts, Survival basically. instincts, that's exactly what I meant. Um, kick in and that's going to be drastically more powerful than uh, a little cuddle time on the couch. You know, it's just saying, go to this new strange place and this is the person that feeds me. So they they are are the most important to me. The other side of it is when we get dogs, even in for training, that might be a little unsure of the situation of being here, that kind of fearful response that you're talking about. We always tell people, you know, we're going to help your dog by first teaching them how to be a dog. And that helps them get over all of their insecurities, basically. Uh, Number one way that we do that about getting them over themselves and helping them just adjust and think about something else is using a treadmill. People look look at us like we're crazy and like, what's a treadmill going to do to help my dog get comfortable at my new house? Or what's a treadmill going to do to help my dog become collar conditioned to recall? Well, if your dog knows how to run on the treadmill, throw it in the comments below. We salute you. Yes. And the reason that we like to use a treadmill is because it builds a lot of mental stability, a lot of mental focus, because they have to be able to handle that to run on a treadmill. And if they are mentally stable enough for that and they can focus and concentrate and think through that, they're going to be ready for other types of training and other higher expectations. As well as uh, we talked about in the previous um, episode or previous part, I guess, of this episode that uh, a dog that's tired mentally and physically is going to be able to relax and rest and feel more comfortable and that treadmill is going to be very mentally taxing to begin with. And I don't know, like, Kat and I notice this every time we go to a show. You go to a um, an expo or an event, and you are there from 9 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. I think 
that's like the pheasant fest. Pheasant fest is a big one that, it's that long, wears yeah. us out. Yes. And there may be 10 to 30,000 people that walk through there and a lot of them roll past the booth because we're usually there with DT Systems, the e-collar company that we pro that step for. That Game Fair too. And Game Fair is another big one, but tons of people rolling through and you're talking and you're smiling and you're interacting with all of these people. And, and answering questions. And mentally taxing. Mentally draining. I mean, by the end of the day, we aren't going out to have dinner and- Just go lay down, <laughs> and sleep. Have a good time. We're like, put me to bed. I'm so tired. Um, so that's a good thing that you can think about applying to your dog situation. And like I said at the beginning of this, just be patient. Two weeks truly in the grand scheme of things isn't that long of a time for him to be able to adjust um, at a year and a half old and not knowing his background and what he has had conditioned and had habits formed prior to that. Um, but being patient helping him work for his meals, I think is going to build that bond and make him be able to settle in a little bit faster. And then the things like the water love, not every dog loves water and you can definitely introduce it properly. But if he is not comfortable with you yet, having enough trust to get in the water that he doesn't know about and isn't sure about isn't the right answer. That's something that you want to wait until he's much more comfortable with you, very bold and confident before you expect and ask that much more of him. 100%. So great, great question. Next question from Stephen F. Lung on Facebook. How do you progress, reinforce longer stays on bed like shown on Instagram with while doing laundry? Treats, e-collar, etc. So awesome that you're following along with our Instagram and Facebook stories. We love that people are enjoying seeing, you know, kennel life and the such. We uh, have just the video for you, so hopefully you are a subscriber and have those notifications turned on. We're going to be shooting the three, count them, one, two, three, Ds of place training. Those are going to be, which one do you want to start with? Distance. Distance. Distraction. And duration, like and you duration. were talking about. So we talk about, we're going to go into more depth in the video, but what you're talking about, how you get longer duration on those dog beds. So we need to first teach the behavior of place training. Then we can have greater expectations of being able to send them from a greater distance, have them stay on that dog bed for a longer duration, and then stay on that dog bed through greater distractions, other dogs, training sessions, folding laundry, etc. And that is definitely a progression of starting with treats and then moving into collar conditioning to those behaviors for sure. So be sure to watch for that video. We'll go into a lot more detail with that. So, okay, next question. Um, this is a good one from Cami Sorensen on Facebook. My two-year-old GSP is very food motivated and obedient when she knows there is food and treats involved. Oh, yeah. However, she doesn't always listen when I don't have food for her. How do I bridge the gap? She knows what the commands mean, but chooses to ignore them without the motivation of a food reward. You want this one or you want me to take it? I've been hogging most of the questions this round, so I will let you answer one. Booyah! So, uh, this is a question that we get a ton. So, you're definitely not alone in this situation, but it's one of those things that's going to be easier than you might think to help overcome. So, first of all, 
Well, we're still working with positive reinforcement. We do a simple thing called variable reinforcement. And when we introduce variable reinforcement, it helps to build more consistency in those situations when the dog's not actively getting food rewards. How this works and why it works, um, or a real-world example, if you will. Gambling is a perfect example for the average person of variable reinforcement. You come in, you play the slot machine. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. You win, right? Some money comes out. Not a lot, a little bit. It's like a piece of dog food, right, for the dog. It's, it's, a, it's a reward, but it's not a huge reward. You play again, you play again, you play again, you win a little bit. So as long as that variable reinforcement happens often enough to keep you enticed, you keep playing. It's going to be different for every person. It's going to be different for every dog. And you have to balance that out. So in a training situation, you would be asking here, uh, kennel, sit, doing some of the different commands, cues that your dogs know. And then um, from there, clicking every time to mark those behaviors and then passing out that food reward less and less often and variably. Don't get any kind of pattern. It's not every third time or every fifth time. It's You do three things in a row, you get a reward. You do one thing, you get a reward. You do five things, you get a reward. So it's always keeping them guessing. And as long as you don't cross that threshold into the level of they no longer have interest, you're going to build progress with this. Now, if you continue to struggle and your dog hasn't figured out that your treat pouch is the only way or the bowl of food on the counter or whatever it may be is the only way they're getting rewarded, you need to move to more regular or more generalized training and feeding. What we would recommend to do with that is to take your dog's entire meal for the day, put it in a bowl, and utilize that throughout the entire time that they are out and around you for training. So all day long, they're working for that food. That's going to put a ton of focus on you and obedience and doing the things that they're supposed to, even to the point where it might become annoying. It's like, Okay, now she's sitting in front of me. Now she went to her bed. Now she's coming over and she's trying to get my attention because she's ready to eat. Um, And when you get that level of focus, you can really start to build good behaviors through uh, all stages of the day and when you're outside and every environment that you're around. Now, that again is still not a perfect situation. It's great for teaching until that food reward is not a powerful enough thing to keep the dog's attention. Then we move to using negative reinforcement or e-collars to build a more consistent understanding in those higher distraction situations. So anything to add? I think you about covered it. If you have more questions, definitely let us know. You can check out, we did do a video recently on operant conditioning, which talks Mm -hmm. in all four quadrants in general about all four quadrants so that you can have a better understanding of going from that positive reinforcement to negative reinforcement and understanding how that works. So Great question. Great question. I think the last question that we're going to be able to get to for part three is from... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Aren't we in part four? No. Okay. Part three. (laughs) I don't know. What part are we in? Put it in the comments below if you know. (laughs) Okay. So from Mrs. Stephanie Stout. Sorry. I... I'm bad at these when they all blur together. This is on Instagram. 
Once you get a puppy, how long do you wait before you start training? Does the puppy need time to get comfortable in their new home with their new family before you start working on things? We recommend starting training your puppy from day one. Let me see how many colors you got. Oh, he's, he's checking my work. Um, so we recommend starting training with your puppy from day one. If you have a very well socialized, bold, confident puppy, your breeder's done all the groundwork for you, you can get them home and you can immediately start all of the training by charging the clicker. In every puppy training series we have on our YouTube channel, that's the first step, charge the clicker. So you can start that process by using their meal and food for that charging process. And then also keep in mind that everything that is new for you new, new for your new puppy uh, is all things that you want to also evaluate and say, okay, I need to set the ground rules. And that is considered training as well. So if you don't want your puppy pottying on the floor, for example, you need to potty train them. And that's not necessarily formal training, but it is monitoring when they get access to water, monitoring how long they've been out, watching them, don't leaving them unattended and showing them where they need to go to indicate that they do need to go out. So all of that training begins at day one. Develop the puppy that you want now uh, so that they're an enjoyable adult to have as part of the family. Beautifully said. Day one. And uh, I can't count worth a darn. We are just finishing up part three. I was right. Always. <laughs> Thank you all for watching part three of this week's Yawa. We will be back with part four very shortly. And uh, it will be part four. I will make sure that he remembers that. Thanks, guys. You haven't done that with any of the other parts that about jumped me out of my socks. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome back. We are in part four, the fourth, the last, the finale, the finite. The end. Of this week's Yawa. So we're going to jump right into it. But guys, if this is the first time to the channel, definitely we appreciate you coming and listening and watching and hitting the subscribe button. So let's answer some questions. We're going to try and get through quite a few this part. So hold on to your seat. From Amanda Christiane on Instagram, how long is reasonable to expect an eight-week-old puppy to stay in a crate at night until you take them out for a potty break? This is going to be really, really, really puppy dependent and really, really, really um, day-to-day and situationally dependent. But most of the time, I'm going to say six to eight hours is pretty realistic goal if you've done the things right leading up to bedtime. And a couple of the things that Ethan mentions doing right leading up to bedtime is one, make sure your puppy's gotten enough exercise and playtime and training time throughout the day that they are ready for bed. If all they've done is hang out in a crate all day and maybe lounge around and play a little bit of chew toy in the afternoon and then go back in their crate 
they are not going to be ready for bed. So make sure they're worn out enough to be ready for bed. Two, make sure they didn't eat and drink something right before bedtime. Right before bed. Definitely, that's going to set you up for failure in the sense that your pot, puppy's going to go, I now need to go potty right after going to bed. Um, and then I would say, um, what would be another thing to set yourself up for success? Meals, water, exercise. Okay. And then just be prepared that your puppy may not like being in their crate for the first few nights and be patient with that. Yes. Be patient with that and don't, uh, don't give in, but you can try We talked about this in, I think the first part. Yeah. Part one. So get the, the, the full skinny there, but we talked about some different options on where to put the crate in, in relation to where you're at and how that can be beneficial. Some other tips and tricks. So Mm -hmm. from K wheat, Zero on Instagram. I love your page and watching the videos. Ah, thank you. Thanks. What do you guys use for tick and flea protection, pour on pills, the collars, or other? Thank you for all your help. Brevecto. Which is a three-month oral pill chew. It is dependent on... They do have a topical. No. It's nasty. We don't like that one. Uh, but we do like the oral pill three months and it is weight dependent, but it's a pretty wide range of weight. So you get pretty good coverage. Um, I think 44 the ones we get, yeah, 44 to 88, 88 pounds mm-hmm. is usually what we are using on our dogs. So covers pretty much every dog we own. So next question from Kiminim. Kim Kiminim? Kiminim on Instagram. Kim-inim. How do you deal with the shedding? Are there any tricks or tips to decrease the amount of shedding or at least make it more manageable? Wait, 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 wait. You're saying your dog shed? If you zoom in real close, you can see the dog hair all over. So, yes, we understand shedding is a thing. And definitely depending on the breed, because you didn't mention what breed you have of dog, the shedding can definitely be more. Um, But definitely also, depending on how much shedding is going on, you can think about things as like regular baths. Don't overbathe though, because that can also dry out their skin and create dry skin and dandruff and things like that. Um, As well as depending on what you're feeding your dog, proper nutrition can also decrease the amount of shedding. But all dogs are going to shed at least a little bit. So we've unless been, there's like a hairless dog. Yeah. And this is like a little tidbit. We've been playing around for years with some different nutritional supplement type of things, additives to our general nutrition to kind of help with some of those things. And we've come across a few things that have really helped. And there is a good potential that we will actually be moving towards releasing that stuff before the end of the year. So um, we will keep you posted on that. But um, stay tuned. There is hope. There's hope. Other than that, you just clean, brush, and bathe. Next question from Sorensen Cami on Instagram. Sorensen. Breeding questions. Woo, 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 woo. What age for for you start breeding? What age do? I think it meant to be do. What age do you start breeding your females? How often do you breed them? And when do you retire them from the breeding program? Six months, six months, six months. Answers all of those questions. No, it does not. So what age do you start breeding your females? 
typically after their second heat cycle at minimum, which can be anywhere from 18 months typically to two years. And that's- Who did we have that cycled early? Vino. Vino. And so we waited for her third heat cycle before we ended up breeding her just because she cycled at six months, which was really young. Um, and we weren't going to be breeding her at just a year old. So typically we wait until their second heat cycle between 18 months, 24 months. We also have done pen hip testing at that point so Mm -hmm. that we know that their hips are good and are going to be part of our breeding program. Then how often do our breed our females? Um, that depends on what we're doing with the females, where they're at in testing. Um, sometimes once a year, sometimes twice a year and, how often, or that was how often, haha. And then when do we retire our females from our program? I would say the oldest dog that we bred has been eight. Um, that was snap. And we retire the dogs though, based on their health, which involves, are they having complications with their pregnancy? Are they having any complications like mastitis during the whelping process? And are they having decreased litter size is usually typically something that's an indication that maybe they don't need to be bred anymore. And the reason that we also consider breeding twice a year, which people are like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you were only supposed to breed once a year, if that. Every time a dog goes through a cycle, their body believes that they are pregnant, period. So it's not really beneficial. It's just as hard on their body to not go through it as it is to go, not exactly the same. I mean, the actual process of the puppies nursing and things like that is more than if they aren't there, but, um, you can end up with, um, cysts and other complications for skipping the cycle. So pyometra can happen as well. Can, um, but the, the biggest things that you're going to be looking at is it's healthier to, for them to be bred or spayed in the the grand scheme of things. So if you're planning on doing a few litters, those being closer together and then the spang happen, or if you're not planning at all, have that one to two cycles so that the dog reaches maturity and then spay them then. So, but we had a really funny comment on YouTube. We don't really get into a whole lot of these, but somebody commented on our spay and neuter conversation that we had with Dr. Peter. If you haven't seen that, podcast. It was one that I did with Peter, um, Dr. Armstrong a little while back, and it's got a big spay or neuter question mark. And somebody, um, one of the things that we talk about is, uh, neutering to prevent like testicular cancer or spaying to prevent ovarian or uterine cancers. Um, I think primarily ovarian, but the, the comment was kind of funny. It said, well, why don't you just remove their brains to prevent brain cancer? What? Yeah, I did not see that comment. Yeah, so um, long story short with the old uh, spaying and neutering thing, it does help prevent some things. Um, and if we have an option for that, obviously removing brains is not an option. Um, but those, those are some benefits to that. But asking about breeding, see how many litters you're kind of hoping, thinking, planning. Get them done while the dog is younger and healthier, just like women. 
younger and healthier they are, the better off and safer and healthier it is for everybody. So. And just keep in mind that there's always a risk when breeding dogs. Always. Um, so if you're considering breeding your dog, you have to understand that there is a risk and there's always a chance that you could lose the female, lose the entire litter. Goodness, we just heard about the horror story. Yeah, we actually yeah. just got reached reached out to. Someone just reached out to us um, that had a tragic situation that they had lost an entire litter except for one puppy during an emergency C-section and then actually lost their mother, the mother of the litter, to complications on the table. So horrible, they have horrible, a singleton horrible. puppy and they reached out to us for options as far as like socialization goes and potentially surrogate situation. And I think we got them some answers and they've got things worked out, but um, terrible tragic wood. situation. We have never had anything that tragic, but... There's always a chance something bad could happen. So uh, we're doing it for the grandkids is probably not the best reason. No. So kind of getting into another question that segues from that, from Pantana Kennels, what makes someone an ethical breeder in our opinion? Interesting question. Um, What makes someone an ethical breeder? I think that if they are... Uh, trying to better the breed, um, which is a subjective question or subjective thought process. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's a good idea for people to be true to what the standard is. And if they don't like the standard, pick the breed that fits what they're looking for, which is something we preach all the time. But um, stay true to that. Um, stand behind what you're doing, which involves genetic health testing, and then... And if you're not able to truly stand behind your puppies from your program, then you probably shouldn't be breeding because there is a huge financial commitment that goes along with standing behind those puppies. If one of the puppies runs into an issue that you need to stand behind as a breeder and you have to buy that puppy back, um, you shouldn't be... Yeah, or... Doing a GoFundMe so that you can buy this puppy back. Yeah, it's... uh, I mean... It's it's one of those things that um, you know we're trying to we're trying to better the breed. We're trying to produce quality dogs um, that go to good family hunting homes. So knowing where your puppies yeah, are going, it's, it, that's exactly. It's important for us to know where they're at, including if something doesn't work out. You know, and it's nobody's perfect. No dog's perfect. No situation's perfect. Things happen. Um, you know, we want the first opportunity to buy that dog back so that we can then again know where they're going and rehome them and put them in the right situation. So they don't um, wind up in a shelter or something somewhere. So if you've got somebody that truly has a, a lot of these things in mind or in goals, uh, their goals as breeders, I think you're headed right down the direction of uh, ethical breeders. Um, I think when you run into situations where um, there's more emphasis put on how many can we make, not how good can we make them, um, that you've fallen off the ethical bandwagon. So, Good question, though. It's a good question, yeah. It's a tough question, though, and it, it raises even more tough questions when you wait, really wait, wait, think wait. about do it. We have a, do we have a moment for um, Ethan's uh, brutally Brutal honest, honest thoughts? Yep. Yeah. We didn't have a segment in any of the previous so let's take a moment. Well, to it's have just this one episode this week. Ethan has one, one brutally honest Ethan's, comment. We need a jingle. Um, hey, producer, producer, get on the Ethan's brutally honest comments jingle. Thank you. 
Um, if you are breeding, I'm going to say this because it's going to upset some people. Here we go. In my opinion. Which that was what they were asking about our opinion. If you have multiple breeds listed, you are probably approaching the category of the unethical breeder. Now, this is it's, not a 100%. I'm going to throw that little caveat in there, but it takes a lot to do one breed and do it right. And, and to attempt, do justice to that breed. Attempt to do justice to the breed and grow it and be moving in the right direction. And if you improving spread that... Improving uh, that breed. Improving that breed. I mean, all of the time, effort, energy, and resources, research that I put into pedigrees and dogs and genetics and all of the things that go into what create what we have. Um, and thinking, testing and training and time to get to those tests. Thinking about doing that with multiple breeds is, it sounds basically impossible. Now, if you get to a third breed on that kennel page, it's like, throw it away. Um, and so. the, the one little caveat that I'll add to your, you know, exception to every rule is if you're breeding two pointing breeds or you're breeding two retrieving breeds, that makes it a little bit easier because they're, they're similar as well as if you're testing and titling, typically you can run both breeds at the same test. You can kill two birds with one stone, if you will. But if you're trying to breed pointing breeds and retrieving breeds, you're going in two different directions if you're truly trying to test them to the utmost ability that they can do. Yeah, I still struggle with it. So uh, I stick with stick with one, do it right. Last question of part four, Yawa. Wait, last wait, wait, are we question. On part four? Yes, we had this conversation in part three. So, last question of part four. Last question of the week is from Gator <laughs> underscore boy underscore hunt. Gator boy hunt from Instagram. I want to send my six month, six and a half month GSP to gun dog school. What cool. questions should I ask the trainers and how should I prep my dog before he goes? This is a really good question. So everybody's program is going to be a little bit different as far as that goes. Um, I think that some of the important things to ask are going to be what level of experience did they have with the specific dog and goals that you have? Because there are there are retrieving breed, um, excuse me, retrieving breed trainers out there. There are pointing breed trainers out there that kind of have that specialized. Now, a dog is a dog is a dog, and I can teach obedience and things like that. But if you come to me with a lab and say, I want a master hunter title, I'm going to say, Bubba, I am not the dude for you. Same if you, even if you come to us and say, I want a field trial champion. I've on got a my pointer dog. that I want to be an all age dog. I don't have horses. I've never done that before. So I'm going to say, find a different trainer and having a trainer that can actually be open and honest with you about what they are confident in doing and what they aren't confident in doing, um, it's is really like important. A, like a concrete guy. That's <laughs> We're not getting into the concrete for the kennel again. Okay, so um, the next would be if you have the opportunity, go check out the facilities. Make sure you feel comfortable. Um, some places are nicer than others, and it's important that you feel comfortable with where your dog is staying. Yes, we've all probably heard horror stories of dogs getting dropped off at training and then 
getting lost at that trainers or dying at the trainers or just coming back from training in poor physical condition where their skin and bones or, you know, aren't even trained. So being comfortable with the trainer and feeling like you have open lines of communication and that you can reach out to them if you have questions about how training is going and that they are going to get back to you in a reasonable amount of time to update you on your dog so that you're not just waiting until the end of your three months of training to go pick up your dog and see what has happened in that three months. I think that's a big portion of it. Yeah. And, um, finding a trainer that Ethan mentioned has experience in what your goals are. And this is the hard part a lot of times for people is when they don't know what their training goals are. And that is completely understandable. When we go through our training dog checklist, when we're checking dogs in for training and I say, so tell me what you want your dog to learn while they're in training. And the people go, uh, well, I want them to be obedient and stop pulling on lead. That tells me right away that obedience typically, is one of the number one things that people, especially the wives or the girlfriends in the situation because they want a dog that can be able to settle down in the house and listen and they can go for walks without their arm getting jerked out of their socket, is really important to almost everyone that walks through our door. Sure. Then they go, well, I don't know, but I want to upland hunt with my dog. And then I start having a conversation and say, okay, well, how does your dog retrieve naturally? How important is retrieving for you? Have you ever had a water introduction? Do you want your dog to be able to retrieve out of water, go swimming? Then I start saying, well, do you ever plan on hunting with another dog? How important is brace work? And I kind of guide that conversation to help pull the information that I need out of our client to find out what their goals truly are so that I can give them realistic expectations for the length of the stay that they're going to need their dog to be here for, as well as what their dog is truly going to be capable of um, in that amount of time. So even if you don't know your goals, if you can find a trainer that can help you understand how to express your goals, um, that would be really important too. That's an awesome question. It is an awesome question, and that's a great one to end on because I'm going to say it. I'm at a my gin and tonic, and we're out of time. Thanks, guys, for watching. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And I'm Kat, the dog trainer. And we will see you next week. Next week. Yeah, every week. We'll be here next week. Peace. Peace.